up, Sassanacs. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week, we're discussing 401 America the Beautiful. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassanac Files for all of the latest and greatest details, including seasons six and seven of Outlander and all about Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Beast That I'm Gone. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 401 America the Beautiful. there, my wonderful Obsassnacks. I hope you had a fantastic break over the last five weeks. I was able to bring you a couple of special episodes with some special guests. So if you weren't able to catch those, make sure you go back and check out my season three superlatives episode with Rebecca and my season six spoiler episode with Angela because we had a great time discussing all the things about season three and season six. So if you have not had a chance yet, like I said, make sure to head over and check those out. But today, guys, we are talking the season four premiere, America the Beautiful. And this episode, I always forget, again, I know this is a reoccurring theme, guys, but I always forget how great of an episode this is. I think generally that's because as a season, season four wasn't my favorite. So the really good episodes like America the Beautiful and the Birds and the Bees kind of get buried in the back of my brain under my general dislike of the (laughs) storyline, probably because they like butchered my favorite book. Drums of Autumn, hands down, was my favorite story of the Outlander series. And season four just really didn't hold a candle to it. So if you're a book reader and haven't had time to pick up the books yet, I highly recommend doing it. It's a fantastic way to explore the universe because as great as the show is, it really just can't comprehensively cover everything that there is to cover. There's just no way for them to do it. And like I said, season four especially, if you didn't care for season four, pick up the book because I think that they left out a lot of the endearing character related scenes that are happening in that book. There's a lot that's lost in translation for the characters, especially Brianna and Roger. So yes, I highly recommend Drums of Autumn. But back to the show, I'm, I know I hate to preach at you guys about the books because some people just don't like to read and that's fine. I have several of those people in my family. So we'll talk about the show because that's what this podcast is all about. I almost feel like we start an entirely different chapter as we come into season four, right? We're in a new setting, we're in America, there's a whole new cast of people, and we are introduced to quite a few of them in this episode. So the first one being Governor Tryon. I'm not going in order with these, by the way, guys, if you haven't guessed already. Governor Tryon is a very interesting character, to say the least, and it's never really completely clear what his motives are in the show. He's really just one of those that you could pick apart. I think Tim Downey does a fantastic job, fantastic job of playing him. He was perfect in that role. It's honestly quite interesting because he's a bit of a comedian. (laughs) So for him to play such a serious role, it really just kind of threw me for a loop that he is such a goof in the best way. 
So yeah, but Tim Downey playing Governor Tryon, he brings this proposal up to Jamie. They meet at the Lillington dinner and he's saying, you know, there are ways for someone of your status to make a living over here in America and you don't have to be a poor settler. Like we can make an arrangement. He's offering Jamie a huge tract of land and seemingly out of the goodness of his heart, you know, like, oh, North Carolina is a wonderful place to be prosperous. And we offer these land grants and all of this. And it really sounds like he's selling this, right? It sounds great. But Jamie, he's selling it to the wrong person in a lot of ways because Jamie is intelligent and he's an experienced laird. He's also a soldier and he's just smart. It's hard to pull one over on Jamie. And he fully realizes that what the governor is offering him is not without its strings. This is what I love about the conversation that he and Claire have after they get back from the dinner because she's saying, oh, I was thinking about the land grant. He said, oh, yeah, I was thinking about that, too. He kind of enlightens Claire in a way that brings the audience into his head a little bit and also opens our eyes because as an audience, we are obligated to trust what's in front of us in a way. And so to see what Jamie sees is very interesting. And he explains it (laughs) with one of the best lines of the show, which is, bees that have honey in their mouth have a sting in their tail. He's not offering me this land for the sake of my bonnie blue eyes. (laughs) And basically what's happening is we're getting the background of season four, kind of taking the temperature of America in its infancy. What we're finding out is that North Carolina is somewhat in a state of rebellion. Governor Tryon has been dealing with these group of insurgents or uh, rebels, whatever you want to call them, called the regulators. And really all the regulators want is for life to be fair. They don't want to be taxed unfairly. They're willing to pay their taxes. It's just Tryon has a lot of corrupt people working for him, and that's not working for the good people of North Carolina. So I can't necessarily say that I disagree with the regulators in any way, shape, or form. And I think that Jamie is very much aware of the fact that he may not have the full story about that yet. But also he's saying that, think about it, why is Governor Tryon offering me these terms? Why is he trying to buy me off? It's not the fact that he's willing to give this to me. That's great. Why is he willing to give this to me? When you look at it from a completely objective third party, it is kind of suspicious. And Jamie kind of breaks it down for us. He says, I'm an outsider with no known loyalties. I'm an experienced soldier. And it's Claire is saying, who would you feel loyal to if you're an outsider with no ties? Well, you'd feel loyal to the man that just gave you a large tract of land. Governor Tryon is being sneaky. And I love that Claire was like, he's practically Scottish, which Jamie just kind of rolls his eyes at. But it's very interesting to see this chess match that is being played already between Jamie and the governor. This is something that takes place over the course of one and a half seasons through the halfway mark of season five. And I just find this storyline in general fascinating because if Jamie decides to take the governor up on his offer, this is a huge tightrope that he's going to be walking through the lead up to the revolution. He knows that, as Claire said to him in this scene, another war is coming. And he's like, well, I fought wars before. Like, oh, no big deal. 
And she said, but you don't understand. We're going to be on the wrong side of history again. We've already done this, okay? We tried to help the Jacobites and we failed. We were against the British the first time. This time, we will seemingly be on the side of the British, but they're going to lose. So again, put in this predicament of, do we try to change history? What do we do? I think they know by this time that there is no changing history. This isn't something that can happen. The course of wars can't be altered by the efforts of two people. It's just not possible. What they're really looking at is, is this a decision that they want to make? What is that commitment going to look like? What are their futures going to be if they take the governor up on this offer? It's fascinating to me, honestly. And I love how Diana created this ultimatum, but also this cat and mouse that Jamie plays a lot of the time, especially as the plot thickens, so to speak, in the next few episodes. It really does kind of get interesting. There were a couple of things that swayed Jamie to stay in America, I think, because at the beginning of this episode, he's planning on selling the gemstones and going back to Scotland because the warrant against him in England and Scotland has been lifted. Lord John used his influence to make that go away. So they're just planning on going back to Scotland, living at Lollybrock and having a full life. Instead, they decide to stay in America. I think the first tiny little step was after Hayes's execution when they're in the tavern and they're seeing the Karish is what it's called, I think. It's basically a Gallic lament that tells the entire story of a person that's just died from the day of their birth to the day of their death. And it's something that's very ingrained in the Scottish culture. Leslie was extremely upset that Hayes wasn't going to have a proper funeral and a proper burial. And the fact that every single person in that tavern stood up and started singing along with this lament at the end, I think that really made Jamie understand that we're not in Scotland, but the culture is here. The people are here. I'm not really giving up that much. And so I think that's where the seed was planted a little bit. And then as we go along in this episode, we see Claire, she really fell in love with America when she was living there. It's where her daughter was born. It's where she became a doctor. It's where she lived 20 years of her life. And so I think there's a small part of her that is fascinated with seeing America before it became America and knowing what it will become that really just draws her in. And you can see that light in her eyes. And I think Jamie sees it as well. It's kind of contagious for him because he's like, oh my God, if this is this land so full of possibility, why am I not going to get in on this? Because it's like Claire says, the only limitations are a person's own abilities and will to succeed. And Jamie's like, well, I have a lot of that. So let's just do this. You know, you can see it. And of course, that conversation gets a bit darker as it goes on. But the idea of the American dream drove a lot of people to the United States. Immigrants, like Claire says, they come in the thousands and millions and they're still coming into America to this day because of that idea of the American dream. And to see that contagious idea of having freedom and being able to do anything that you set your mind to, that's really alluring to an immigrant who doesn't have anything. I mean, yes, Jamie has Lollybrock, but it's not even really his anymore because he gave it to his nephew after the rising. So Jamie really doesn't have much. And when he thinks about it, about America being his daughter's birthplace and 
being able to have some impact on her life in the future, even if it's not much, and even if she doesn't really know it's there, if he can help America become the country that she knows and loves, he really, really wants to do that. And so I think that is honestly one of the key things that makes Jamie want to stay in America. Sam Hewen said when he was doing an interview about season four that he really considered season four to be Jamie's love letter to his daughter because of everything that he is willing to do to help her, to protect her, to make her life better. And so to see that she's really the reason that he decided to stay in America in the first place is really, really fascinating to me. But as much as the American dream is this beautiful ideal to strive to. I think there's a lot of in this episode that contradicts that. It's really great how the showrunners did this because even the show is titled America the Beautiful, right? The final song of the episode is a rendition of America the Beautiful by Ray Charles. I said a couple of episodes ago that Outlander doesn't have contemporary music in it very often. It's very choosy on those moments because it has a bigger impact on the story and the storytelling method that they're using to be selective in their choices of when they use this contemporary music. This season four premiere is one of those moments where it really just blew me away. It's not time period appropriate, obviously, It's blues, right? It's Ray Charles. It's a bluesy rendition of it. And in a lot of ways, the tone of the music is almost melancholy, which is really a great undercurrent for this episode in general. Because like I said, as much as there is that idealistic American dream thread running through this episode, you also have the much darker side of America. And I think that is something that is really explored in season four starting out the episode with Hayes's execution, he killed a man trying to defend himself and he was executed because of it. So you already have a botched sense of justice because Jamie tried to talk to the magistrate and it didn't work out. So immediately off the bat, within the first 10 minutes, we see Jamie and Claire lose one of their best friends that didn't even want to come to America. He did it because he wanted to help Jamie and Jamie was his friend And he felt a sense of duty to be there for him and help him in any way he could. That's the only reason Hayes was in America to begin with. And yes, he didn't help himself by sleeping with a married woman and pissing this lady's husband off, which is why he got in this mess in the first place. But at the same time, there wasn't any allowance for that self-defense argument there. It, It just wasn't. And it's a clear-cut black and white, did you kill him or no? Well, if you did, you're a murderer. So there's this already semi-corrupt undercurrent going on within the first 10 minutes. And then we kind of gradually see it decline throughout that. Because as much as Claire's talking about the beauty of America and what it will become in the future, there's this wonderful question that Jamie asks, well, what about the people that are already here? And Claire's like, well, yeah, about them. Um, Well, they'll be driven from their ancestral lands. A lot of them will be killed or driven to live on reservations. It's not unlike what the British did to the Scots. And Jamie says the line, a dream for some can be a nightmare for others. 
And I really felt like that was the theme of this episode because everything can be hunky-dory one minute, but you never quite know what's lurking under the surface until it pulls you under. Then it's a whole other ballgame, you know? So we kind of get that foreshadowing with what happened to the natives and Jamie's comment. And then at the very end of this episode, we have the robbery by Bonnet. I had a visceral reaction to Stephen Bonnet this time around. (laughs) I know that Jamie was grieving and that that impacted his decision on um, how he handled Stephen Bonnet. Clearly, he didn't like the guy from the start. He just had a bad feeling about him. And normally, Jamie would trust his instinct. And I think that Jamie learned a vital lesson in this episode. It came at the cost of being robbed to the point of destitution, and it also cost his friend his life. But Jamie learned to trust his instincts no matter what. If your gut is telling you, don't do it, this is a bad decision, then don't do it. But the thing about Stephen Bonnet is he knows how to play people so well. He knew exactly what to say to manipulate Jamie into feeling a sense of obligation to help him. You said you'd never turn your back on a friend. Well, obviously us watching are like, what the hell makes you a friend? (laughs) I had a bad feeling about the guy. I had actually watched the show before I read Drums of Autumn and I really just had a bad feeling about him from the start. He just gave me the willies for some reason. He really, it was so interesting. I think Ed Spoliers did a phenomenal job playing Stephen Bonnet because he really can appeal to people. He's a very charming individual. And I think that comes across in the way that he plays Stephen Bonnet. But then he can flip a switch on the turn of a dime, just be the most evil bastard you've ever seen. It's fascinating to me how this works. And so as I am contemplating Stephen Bonnet, I'm realizing that we haven't had a villain, a real villain on the show since Blackjack Randall. We've had some pretenders, so to speak, like some wussy villains. I mean, we've had the Comte Saint-Germain, we've had Bonnie Prince Charlie, we've had the Duke of Sandringham, but they're not that really impactful you're totally scared shitless of them. I was talking to my brother earlier tonight and he said, you know, I really don't think I have ever seen a villain that really just owns it like Blackjack. I've never seen a villain quite like him on the screen. And he said, I don't know that I ever will again. He was just really, really, truly impressed by the level of evil that has been compiled into the character of Blackjack Randall. And I told him, yes, to a certain degree, I think that that is true. Blackjack Randall is a class A sadist. But if you really break it down and think of it, I said, I honestly think that Stephen Bonnet is just as bad, if not worse, in a lot of ways, because they're both sociopaths, right? They both know how to mimic social norms to get by. But the difference is, is that Blackjack Randall is an equal opportunity sadist. He just likes to make people feel pain. Stephen Bonnet is a narcissist. He thinks of himself first and only. If something doesn't suit him, he's not going to do it. 
And if something suits him, no matter how immoral it might be, that's what's going to get done. He doesn't have a conscience at all, but he knows how to fit into society so well that you don't see him coming. Where I find it a vivid difference between Black Jack Randall and Stephen Bonnet is that Black Jack makes no bones about it. He is a evil individual. He knows that about himself. And it's like he tells Claire, I dwell in darkness and darkness is where I belong. It's who he is and he accepts that. I think Stephen Bonnet accepts it about himself as well, but he's the snake in the Garden of Eden is how I I put it. He is constantly just luring people here and there and then all of a sudden just wham. It's done. You're done. It's all over. So I don't know who's worse, I guess, is what it's boiling down to. I think that they are uniquely interesting villains and that Stephen Bonnet is definitely the only villain so far in the Outlander verse that can hold a candle to Blackjack. So I will leave it there for now and we can contemplate this as we learn more about him throughout the series. But he was able to use Jamie's own emotions against him to get them to help him and then turns around and robs them and kills Leslie because it serves his purpose. That is just a whole other level of nasty, in my opinion. So that covers what we see of America the Beautiful and the Ugly. <laughs> I really do love that theme. I think it it warranted a discussion because just because something's shiny and new looking on the surface doesn't mean there's nothing ugly underneath. Something else that's completely ugly underneath, and I'm glad that they touched on it, is young Ian's PTSD about what he experienced at the end of season three. This is actually something that Diana Gabaldon had to fight for because they were going to take it out. And she said, wait, no, you can't take this out because this scene makes the payoff of the season four finale worth it. If you don't have this scene showing the bond between Ian and Jamie, then you're not going to understand quite on the same level what we see in 413. So I'm really glad that Diana fought for this also because it just really doesn't make sense for Ian to have gone through all the things that he went through and then just shove it under the rug or push it into the closet and lock the door and we never hear about it again. I like that we're experiencing all of this, these traumatic events, but also the fallout of those traumatic events with these characters because it's realistic. Like on network TV, a lot of the times these terrible things happen and then in an episode or two, they're fine and we move on and we never hear about it again. What I love about Outlander is that they take the time to internalize these terrible events that are happening to these people and think about how it affects them mentally and physically, emotionally. And we see that play out across the season and actually period with their characters. We can see it change who they are. And moving forward, it impacts their decision making and how they empathize with other characters. So I really do love that they chose to include that. I'm glad that Diana won her argument to keep this scene in this episode because I really did feel the impact, like that bond that forms between Ian and Jamie when Ian is asking, have you ever lain with someone and not wanted to do it? And Jamie says, I have. 
And whether he's thinking about Black Jack Randall or Geneva, either way, he didn't want to do that. And it's like Ian said, he was like, all the while, you know, it feels pleasing, but you just detest it. And Jamie says what Claire said to him, which is, you did what you had to to survive. I love that just one little argument from Claire, like five or six words stuck with Jamie all that time. He held on to those words. And it just goes to show that even something as small as one sentence can impact a person for the rest of their lives and be a piece of advice or comfort that they can give to someone else that has been in their situation. So I really do appreciate that they kind of have these callbacks and also use these situations to create these bonds between these characters. Because really, a lot of these situations you can't fully understand unless you have been there yourself. So that's what they're building in all of these traumatic incidents, these rapes and sexual assaults, things like that. It validates it in my mind a little bit that they continue to bring it up and talk about it and show how it's impacting their characters. There's one more thing that I want to chat about before I get off of here for this week. I saved the best for last because you know me, I am a sucker for all things Jamie and Claire. I think anybody who watches Outlander feels that way. So there were two particular scenes between them that really just hit me in the feels (laughs) this week. Um, The first is the thermodynamic scene. This scene is straight out of the books and it ran a knife through me the first time I read it in Drums of Autumn. Oh my man. I I remember being like, Jamie Fraser, what are you doing to me? When he says the line, when my body dies, my soul will still be yours. Because it's such a beautiful concept to think that Time and space, life or death, it doesn't separate two people that truly love each other. Like, regardless of if they're together or apart, those feelings still exist. It's like he says, nothing is lost, Sassanac, only changed. And she makes the most geeky comment I have ever heard, saying, that's the first law of thermodynamics. And he says, no, that's faith. Having such faith that nothing can separate you from the one that you love really just brings tears to my eyes because it's so beautiful. These words, it's just, it's amazing. (laughs) Really, this is why I love these characters because their relationship is so awe-inspiring. Like, I, as an author, I would kill to create characters like this. <laughs> I envy Diana so much because she has really created something special with Jamie and Claire's relationship. And it's what keeps us coming back for more. As beautiful as the rest of the story is and as jaw-dropping sometimes and cliffhanging, it's Jamie and Claire that keep us coming back for more. And the sex scene, honestly, like, it's not the most graphic It's not the most steamy, but I think it's probably one of the most romantic of the series because there is something about the way that they look at each other and they hold each other that really just takes my heart and squeezes it. Honestly, one of my favorite things is how Jamie just buries his face in Claire's chest at the end and then kind of like bites her shoulder a little bit and then she runs her thumb 
over his lip. And there was something so sensual, but so beautiful about that moment. Like them just not only enjoying each other, but having that sense of oneness between them and that appreciation of the person they have in front of them. It is one of the most gorgeous scenes in this entire series, I think. Plus, the campfire light makes everything in that scene just glow, and I thought it was absolutely amazing. On top of the fact that this is the only other time that this happens in the series so far, it's the wedding theme that plays during this scene. There's the very um, Jamie and Claire theme that we typically get in these scenes, But the wedding theme is different in musicality from the general Jamie and Claire theme. It's absolutely gorgeous, very melodic, very dynamic. And I just love it. Because when I got to internalizing it, I was thinking, this is the coming together of Jamie and Claire. They've been together for half a season after their reunion in season three. And it's probably been seven months or so since they've been together, but this is the confirmation of what they have. This is reaffirming their relationship and how they feel about each other and them committing to each other on screen for the world to see. And I think that is why they chose the wedding theme, because it's the first time that we're really seeing that. We didn't have, obviously we had the elation and the emotion of them reuniting after 20 years apart, But then they had this giant scene of, I don't know if I belong here anymore. And then Ian got kidnapped and it all went to shit. Well, this season four premiere where they have this sex scene and the scene by the fire where they're talking about the meaning of life and how fleeting it is. And then they're saying to each other with their bodies and with their words that you're right, life is fleeting and it doesn't matter how long we're physically here together on earth. I will always love you. And I want to be alive with you right now for as long as I can. I want to be with you. So that's kind of in a way them reaffirming their wedding vows. And I think that is why they chose this moment in particular to have the wedding theme going. The other scene that really was just tear-inducing in this episode for Jamie and Claire was the scene where Jamie gives Claire the medical chest. Because, first off, and Jamie even says it, he doesn't give her a lot of gifts. He hasn't ever been able to give her much. And I think that bothers him because he would give her the world if he could. And life just hasn't allowed him to be that, to be able to do that. To have that happiness and to have the time to be able to give her all the wonderful laces and jewels that he desires to give her. It's just not in the cards for them. And this is when Claire says, you know, I don't need all of that. You have given me so much more than physical gifts. You have given me everything. You gave us our daughter and I have you and that's what I need. It was a really beautiful thing because this is probably the best gift that Jamie could have given her because it's saying, I recognize who you are as a person and your calling in life. And if I can help you be better or be happier, then that is my sole purpose. And I love the line when he is saying, 24 years ago, I married you, Sassanac. I hope I've never given you cause to regret it. 
And she says not for a single day. I mean, first off, if she had even paused with regret, I'm pretty sure millions of women would have jumped through the screen and slapped her across the face. (laughs) Because who could regret being married to Jamie Fraser? Like, it's just not possible. He is the best, best man ever. And I don't even know if they exist in real life. A lot of women I've talked to over the course of meeting so many people in the Outlanderverse have said, well, I found my Jamie and we're so in love. And I am so happy for you. I really am. But from what I have seen of men, I don't know that I will ever find my Jamie. And maybe that's depressing. But, you know, I'll just watch it on screen. (laughs) That's why we love Outlander, right? But to all of you that have found your Jamie Fraser or your Claire Fraser, congrats to you. I'm so happy for you. I hope that everybody's able to find their Jamie or Claire in time because I think that Having that level of love and commitment for someone is really a special thing that only a few people in this world find. So you hold on to them for as long as you have them because it really is special. And with that, that's all I have to say about the season four premiere, America the Beautiful. As always, I want to talk about quote of the episode, which obviously, how could it not be, is when my body dies, my soul will still be yours because it's epic. It's romantic. It is the epitome of a amazing Jamie Fraser line. So I have to give that as the quote of the episode. But performance of the episode goes to a newbie because I thought Ed Spoliers did a really good job of pulling the charm And being a civil person and then all of a sudden, like, whoa, and then he just slit this guy's throat for no apparent reason. Like, that was intense. So I think that he did a fantastic job. Overall, I think he does a great job of Stephen Bonnet, as we see over the next few episodes. But yes, I thought that he had a fantastic debut. Hats off to him. And can't wait to talk about more of his performances in the next little bit. And with all of that out of the way, I, as always, opened it up to the masses for you to leave your comments on what you thought of the season four premiere. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Susan Fichtel Lackey says, I really liked the deep subject matter coverage. I also like the Ray Charles version of America. Such a contrast to the period, but ties in the struggles for the pursuit of the American dream across the centuries. It really does. And I I agree with you. I loved their choice of America the Beautiful by Ray Charles because there are so many renditions of America the Beautiful over the decades that it would have been easy to come up with a bluegrass type theme to go with the theme song for season four, but they made the choice to choose this Ray Charles version. And I really think it paid dividends. It was great. Jennifer Wiseman says... This is one of those episodes I play on repeat the way others do The Wedding or A Malcolm. To me, the episode has everything. Sadness, joy, hope, fear, fortune, and loss. And my favorite love scene, bar none. The love scene is so intimate and loving and they connect so beautifully. I hate watching Jamie let down his intrinsic distrust of Bonnet because of his emotions over Hayes. And then watch that distrust show true when they are robbed at the end of the episode. It is indeed an emotional roller coaster. Agreed. 100%. I was so mad at Stephen Bonnet this episode. Like, literally wanted to pull him out of the screen and throttle him. 
because I hate the idea that there are these people in the world that just two-face it and are only serving their own best interests and they don't care who they have to hurt. That was frustrating, but then also to see that Jamie had doubts about what was best because of what happened with Hayes and that he couldn't help Hayes. To see that grief and distrust of his own gut feelings went out and really just continues to snowball and how it screws everybody over because Stephen Bonnet is still alive. Like, it's just so frustrating. I mean, it makes for great drama, but it really just got me this time. I was, I was very angry about it. And my final comment of the episode is from Bridget Levi. She said, this is one of my favorite episode endings, which sounds horrible because it was so brutal, but it really was because of the way the music was used. The Ray Charles version of America the Beautiful playing over the horrific actions in the scene was such an artistic and ironic juxtaposition. By putting the dialogue in the background, we really got to see the emotional acting choices made by everyone in the scene. I hadn't read Drums of Autumn before watching season four, so I didn't know what to expect, but I was wary of Stephen Bonnet when we first met him. Diana is a master of creating characters we love to hate. Even though I suspected Bonnet to be no good, I think I was still totally surprised at how bad he would turn out to be because I trusted Jamie's judgment of character. I believe that fatal mistake on Jamie's part and the guilt he carried because of it is what drove his actions for the entirety of the season. 100% Bridget. It really does impact him down the line. And I think as it continues, and like I said, there's this, it picks up momentum of all the destruction that Stephen Bonnet is responsible for. And we can point back to this moment where Jamie could have said, no, I am not going to help you. You're on your own, pal. Would that have mattered? We'll never know. Jamie will never know. I mean, could have been that if Jamie and Claire had not basically bought him safe passage to that tributary and back to his crew, he would have been captured by Redcoats and hung. There's always that possibility, but instead, Jamie made the executive decision as the leader of the group to get Stephen Bonnet away safely and trusted that he was a good person and that he would hold up his end of the bargain. It's not the case. It really isn't. And it's sad because it makes Jamie question everything and it creates an immense sense of guilt for him as we keep going down the line because of all the things that happened because of it. I mean, it's just really awful, honestly. And I hate that. I hate that Jamie's trust in people gets him burnt so badly. It, it really just sucks. Sucks something fierce, guys. So with that delightful thought, I will bring this episode to a close. That's it. We have finished the first episode of season four. Woo! <laughs> I feel like I need a round of applause or something. So with all of that out of the way, we've come to this section of the episode where I talk about all the good stuff as far as Outlander season six, seven, and go tell the beast that I'm gone. If you guys have not had a chance yet and you would like to, there is a new group going around the official Outlander book club and it's run by Random House Publishing. And if you follow the group, you can read the full first chapter of go tell the bees that I'm gone. And guys, it is so good. It's so good. I loved it. I loved every second of it. I know I said I was not going to read Bees until after I reread the entire series, but 
my self-control is slipping a little bit every second. <laughs> so by the time November 23rd rolls around, I probably won't have much self-control left. Let's put it that way. So you can read the first full chapter of Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone there on the official Outlander book club. Also announced this week because it was World Outlander Day, June 1st. For those of you that don't understand why World Outlander Day is a thing, it is the anniversary of the publishing date of the very first book. And since Outlander has become this humongous phenomenon, we have World Outlander Day which is really just an excuse for Stars and Random House Publishing and Diana Gabaldon to give us all the deets on all the new stuff. So Stars announced that filming for season six will be wrapping on Friday. A lot of the actors and actresses involved with the project have already wrapped, but the principal actors, so Katrina and Sam and possibly Sophie and Rick, will be wrapping on Friday. Another thing that they announced is that because of COVID, Season six is only going to be eight episodes, but never you fear Dinah Fash of Sassanax, okay? It's gonna be fine because season six and season seven were both renewed for 12 episodes. Because COVID is such a ginormous pain in the ass and makes everything else a pain in the ass, as a result, they just really were having a hard time getting things done on set. So they made the executive decision for whatever reason that it was doable to cut season six with eight episodes. Season seven is going to pick up those remaining four episodes and be a 16 episode season. And it is going to start filming early next year. Season six will premiere in February of 2022, per Sam Hewen's Twitter account. <laughs> I don't know if he accidentally did it, but it's out there in the universe. There are screenshots. <laughs> February of 2022 is when we can expect season six to be on our screens, and it will come to us with a 90-minute premiere episode. So technically, if you want the silver lining, season six is technically nine episodes because... The season six premiere is two for the price of one. So yes, it's going to be great. I'm so excited. They released several official photos and it looks so good. Kat announced when she shared the information that they were getting ready to wrap on Friday that she was extremely thrilled. COVID has made conditions nearly impossible on set, but that she really felt like season six was something for them all to be proud of. And she could not wait for us to see it, which is really high marks because Kat doesn't make comments like that very often. I mean, obviously, they're all very proud of the all the hard work that they put into this, this show in general. But she doesn't get on and be like, I really think that we made something special for you guys very often. So I am really excited to see what they've got coming down the pipe for season six. And hopefully in the next couple of months, we will get a at least a teaser trailer. Like, I'm kind of dying here. Like, this is great giving us all of these details and everything, but God, give us a break. Like, four images. I mean, granted, we did get other news on World Outlander Day, but I need some, some physical proof that this is happening. <laughs> So I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And I know it's a bit greedy. Like they just gave us this information. We should be satisfied with this. But I really just can't wait to sink my teeth into that first trailer. So 
Hopefully it'll be coming in the next couple of months and we won't have to wait too long. Eight months from now, we can start the countdown. I'm pretty sure it's going to come around Valentine's Day because they like to give us all the all the romantic outlander feels on Valentine's Day weekend. So that's my prediction. Valentine's Day-ish in February of 2022. We can do this, guys. It's been over a year already. We're in it to win it, okay? We're in this together. And the bonus is that I'm hoping to get all five seasons of Outlander covered on this podcast before season six starts. So hang in there with me. I will be making my way through the episodes as quick as I humanly can with my seriously busy schedule. But I'm here with you guys and we will get through Outlander together. So until next time, guys, you stay safe out there and I will chat to you later.